Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties across the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, episode 48, I think, uh, your weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And abroad, we are going not that far, though, just across the ditch to New Zealand. On today's podcast, we're going to be joined by Neil Jones, uh, who was the former uh, chief of staff to the then opposition leaders, um, Andrew Little, and then Jacinda Ardern into the election campaign that got just elected in 2017. And Neil coming on today to talk NZ politics uh, and Jacinda and her leadership and how the uh, Labor government over there has handled outbreak of uh, COVID-19 in uh, such efficient and uh, successful ways that now their uh, economy has sort of reopened internally anyway. And we'll also get a bit of a breakdown as we lead into the election campaign, which is up in September this year. And we'll find out about how Jacinda and the team are going to get re-elected to form, hopefully, uh, a new Labor government uh, later this year. So look out for that episode today. Don't forget to subscribe to Socially Democratic on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating and uh, leave a review, a positive one. And for all the updates on the podcast, don't forget to follow the socials um, on uh, Dunn Street for Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Let's get to today's episode. Oh, actually, no, wait. Today's episode was uh, also produced produced by uh, Rebecca Connell. Thank you, Rebecca, for your great work. Okay, we're taping this one on a Friday afternoon in sunny Melbourne in lockdown, uh, second podcast for the week. Uh, just call me a working class man. On the line from uh, Wellington, New Zealand, we are joined today by the former chief of staff to the then leader of the opposition, Andrew Little, and the following leader of the opposition into the election that uh, took Labor back into government, Jacinda Ardern. Um, he now heads up the Capital Government Relations team and joining us online from NZ is Neil Jones. Welcome to Socially Democratic. Hey, Stephen. Nice to talk to you again. Uh, it's been a while, actually. Last time I did speak to you, you were the Chief of Staff to Andrew Little. And um, how things changed so quickly in that period from when uh, when I was over in New Zealand to uh, to then leading up into that election in which you then got back into government. Yeah, it was the most bizarre seven weeks of my life, I think, going from the public basically not liking us and being on about 23%, I think, on the last poll, to winning winning the election and uh, forming a government and going through this wild campaign where suddenly we were cool, people liked us, and um, you saw young people wearing Labour t-shirts and volunteering in droves. It was, it was amazing. It really was, actually. Uh, I came back over uh, on election day. Um, and flew into Auckland and went and uh, door knocked, canvassed in uh, in South Auckland, and the response on the doors that day. I mean, albeit it was turnout, so we're trying to drive Labor voters to go and vote, but it was huge. Um, the attitudes of voters towards Jacinda and to Labor um, was so positive and so encouraging and so hopeful as well about change. Mm. Um, it was a great and campaign. Think, yeah, and I think for me there was a real lesson there, which is you know being a politico. I always, I always thought policy and message were, were so important, and they are. But I'd, I hadn't sort of, I think, appreciated how important leadership and optimism and energy and hope are until that campaign when Jacinda Ardern took over. And, you know, we got the policy, we got the messaging, but people weren't listening. And it, it really took that hope and energy and drive to really propel people. I don't know if I've ever shared this theory before on the podcast, but I just think now is the time to do that. Um, and if I have done this before to the listeners, I apologize for going over old thoughts, but I have formed a view over time that politics 
needs to be a political party needs to be in particular the elected representatives of that political party in 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 parliament essentially the team needs to be like in excess the band the australian band in excess and I, I only choose in excess i don't know why i choose in excess i there are probably other bands that i could choose that classic kind of band with charismatic front person uh, mm-hmm. the gender in this instance is not important um in excess doesn't work without both the Farris brothers writing incredibly great music, but also Michael Hutchins up front singing that incredibly great music and leading with charisma on the stage in back in the days when concerts were packed out with hundreds of thousands of people in the MCG kind of scenario, right? Or at Wembley. In excess doesn't work if you flip the roles. If you try and get the Farris brothers up front trying to sing those songs, the music is now crap. Or if you try and get, uh, Michael Hutchins to write music, um, it doesn't work. Like stay in your lane and politics is very much is like that. You can write the best policy, but if you don't have someone up front that can communicate effectively that policy to the public, they're not going to listen. And I noticed that, and I don't, don't say it as a slight against Andrew Little either, um, but nothing really changed, did it, for you guys in terms of policy settings between the leadership of Andrew Little and then transferring across to Jacinda. But all of a sudden people started paying attention. Exactly. I mean, look, Jacinda Ardern did bring in a more of a focus, I think, on climate change and the environment, which hadn't been there as much. But by and large, it was the same policy platform. The same policies that were planned were rolled out by and large. And one of the criticisms people came up with was they said, oh, you've got the exact same policies. You've just changed your leader, you know. What, what's the big deal? Why is everyone voting Labour? What wants to vote Labour? And I, I think that kind of, again, misunderstood what was going on. And while, while I'm no expert in excess, that's slightly outside my lane. Um, I think <laughs> I think the thing to remember as well as this is, apart from the fact that people connect with authentic politicians and charismatic politicians, is I think in politics, we, we think that we're electing a manifesto with a talking head to explain it, but we're not. We're electing people. And most of the things a government does you could never actually predict before a campaign. And this kind of will go into what we're talking about, I think. But, you know, nobody knew when they were electing Jacinda Ardern that she would face a terrorist attack in Christchurch. You know, a man walking to the mosque and shooting it up and, and a nation reeling from that. No, no one knew that COVID-19 would come along and would have to shut the economy down. You know, mm. how, and have this major public health crisis. But people could see and trust Jacinda Ardern and her values and the kind of leadership and, and, and care she embodied and say, actually, you're the kind of person with the kind of values we want to run our country and we trust you to make the right decisions. And that's, that's so important in politics because, like I say, you know, Labor didn't have a manifesto policy on those things. Yeah, no, they didn't at all. And we'll, we'll talk more about Jacinda's leadership a bit later in the, in the podcast um, and the journey that she's been on because I find it quite interesting and I really want to get your take on that. But before we do, I... I, I I think it's worthwhile just kind of talking about the the context that you guys are in right now. Um, mm. And certainly from our Victorian listeners, uh, the state of Victoria or Melbourne, metropolitan Melbourne is now back in lockdown, whereas the rest of the mm. state is not and the rest of the country is slowly opening up. Uh, in New Zealand, the New Zealand government's response to the initial outbreak um, was regarded by many as being, you know, first class or, or best practice um, when you, from the moment you identified your first case back in late February, walk us through the steps that the government took to address uh, the spread of the virus in uh, in sure. those weeks of early March. I think one of the really important things that Jacinda Ardern did was she she held a national sort of announcement, and everyone sort of stopped, and you you know you walked down the street, and people were on their phones just like listening to the to the to the live stream in the middle of the street, huddled in doorways, and everyone assumed there was going to be some major announcement. And at the time, it seemed underwhelming. She, she simply announced a four-step plan for how we would manage the virus. And it was from level one, which is very few restrictions, up to level four, which was a complete lockdown of the country. And she talked through those different steps and what would happen at each step, why we would go there, how we would get out of it. And it was a very clear explanation to New Zealand and, and a buy-in from New Zealand about how we were going to deal with, with the virus and kind of got people psychologically prepared for what was coming. 
And so after that, a lot of the media coverage was, oh, that was underwhelming. It was just a comms presentation. What was the point of it? Shortly after, we, we went into we, we went to level two immediately, level three, level four. And level four was the complete lockdown. And New Zealand, I mean, Jacinda Ardern was led the whole way through by a, by a science approach. But it wasn't just science. I mean, these things are never just science. There's political judgments as well. Mm. Because you have to judge whether people are going to follow what you're, what you're doing. You have to judge whether it's feasible. And there are always costs and benefits. But she, she followed the science and, and took leadership. And she called a four-week full lockdown of the country. What? And it was one of the strict, strictest lockdowns. Yeah, in talk the world. about that. What, what, what did that mean? So it meant that basically you were confined to your house. You had, you were confined to the people in your house. You could take one state-mandated walk per day, out or exercise per day. You go for a run or a bike ride, but you had to stay two meters apart, and you had to stay. The only reason you could drive your car was to a local supermarket to buy food. So I think supermarkets and pharmacies were open, but butchers, bakers, bars, everything else was shut. Um, the only workplaces which could open were essential, basically those that were essential for the maintenance of life right. in New Zealand. So most businesses had to shut. Um, and so it was, it, was a, it was one of the strictest lockdowns in the world, and it was quite remarkable that it happened in a Western democracy. I would, I would not have thought it was possible before we entered that period. And, I mean, at the time, there were doubters. There were people who said we should be more like Australia where you can go to McDonald's or KFC or, you know, mm. be out and about more. Um, the national opposition was screaming about why aren't we following Australia? It's far more effective there. It's not as bad for the economy. Um, there were even those who were saying we should be more like Sweden um, and just do nothing. So there, there was some opposition to it. But by and large, in fact, almost unanimously, the public backed it. Um, the polls showed sort of 90% public support for the lockdown. And I think that's there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one of them was that we are not as polarized as some other countries. You know, as a country, I think there's a lot more um, unity and community feeling in New Zealand than some other countries. For example, Britain or the US, where they've had you know horrendous division over these things. But I think also Jacinda Ardern's leadership during it, she was decisive, but she was also calm and transparent and taught people through it honestly, and they trusted her. So when she said we have to do this, people trusted that it was the right thing to do. And they trusted she wasn't, you know, when, when she, you know, when they had to implement some laws, which were pretty draconian, you know, essentially taking away huge civil liberties, they trusted her not to abuse those. And I think, she, you know, she had these daily press conferences where every day she would stand there next to the Director General of Health. And there was the media could ask any questions they wanted. It was brought, it was live streamed. In fact, it was broadcast to every New Zealander on 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 television news. And every day she would explain what they were doing, what it meant, and how we were tracking. And it worked. Um, we exited lockdown and we had eliminated COVID nineteen from New Zealand. Remarkably. It's, yeah, it's it, it really is remarkable uh, when you think about it. And I think you're like, how many days now since you Oh, I forget. Yeah, it's like but, but, but it's a couple of months now, I think. Yeah. yeah that um, talk about the economic impact of doing such drastic uh, measures. Like, what policy measures did the government implement to ensure that the economy was on some sort of life support in that phase? Well, look, I mean, I'm assuming you've, immediate... like, you've locked Sorry? down. You've locked down like major projects. Did they stop? Yes. Wow. Okay. But but what what it what it meant was, I mean, this was the debate. So the debate was, is this going to be too damaging for the economy? But the argument always was that the best economic, the best economic response is a good health response. And in fact, the Treasury did a range of scenarios which showed the best economic outcome for New Zealand was if the lockdown happened once, that was hard, and it worked. And the worst economic scenario was that the lockdown isn't strict enough, doesn't work, and we're in and out of lockdown restrictions for, for months and months and months. And that's that's what happened. So in terms of immediately, I mean, the government took a Keynesian approach. Um, Grant Robertson, the finance minister, came out and said, you know, he wasn't going to 
allow the crisis to be borne by the poor or for it to be an excuse for cuts. Uh, so there was a $51 billion package came through, which multiply that by about five or six for Australia for an equivalent. Yep. Um, they put in a wage subsidy, which was very high trust. So no bureaucracy there. You just, businesses just applied and said, here are my workers and here's who I'm applying for. And it went straight into them. There was some controversy. Some said it should have been paid to the employees. The argument was you wanted to keep employees attached to the businesses and not be laid off. So it was easier to come out. The other, the other thing was they, they trusted businesses to do it, but what they did was they published a list of businesses who had taken the wage subsidy, and they said they'd be auditing randomly as well so that if you committed fraud, you'd probably be found out. Mm-hmm. And that, that was a roaring success. There was, you know, unemployment has ticked up a little bit, but nowhere near what the projections said it might. They also did a bunch of things to help businesses around loans and support and so forth. And then there was a rent, there was a, a ban on kicking people out of rentals. So there's a rent freeze and a ban on, on evictions. And there's a, there's a mortgage holiday put in. Because the, the other thing that the government realized was that the real misery in an economic downturn comes as well when people start being kicked out of their houses. You know, when they're, when they're evicted, when people lose their homes that they own, um, that's when you start to get real displacement and misery. So the aim was keep people in their jobs, try and keep businesses running through that period, and try and keep people in their homes. Is uh, one of the problems that's happening in the United States now, particularly around the rental stuff, is that now that they're coming out of this rent freeze, uh, people have to back pay what was frozen over that period, and they don't have the money to cover that. How have you guys managed to deal with that? Um, to be honest, that hasn't really emerged as an issue in public. I'm sure it is happening from place to place, but it's not something that's really come up as a major issue. I think, you know, the unemployment um, impact hasn't been as bad as we thought it would be. Uh, so to be honest with you, I, I haven't heard that being a major issue in New Zealand any more than it normally is. What's the steps now for the government as they come out of this uh, heavy lockdown phase economically? How are you, what are the steps that the government are taking to start to bring the economy back to life? One of the major things they're doing is investing in infrastructure and particularly around shovel-ready projects. So uh, one of the things they realised is that construction might just freeze up and you need a bunch of jobs that people can go into. So they've identified, they did a call for projects and they've they've pumped billions into into getting construction, both of, you know, uh, transport and, you know, buildings, um, just getting that moving. Uh, for, for most of the economy, it's kind of, just going back to normal. The big issue that that they face now is tourism and international education. Those are the two industries that are really struggling. And the reason why is because you know the rest of the economy is back to normal, and we're trading with our export you know export partners as as always. the The issue is with the ban on anyone entering New Zealand who's not a New Zealand citizen or resident, and the fourteen day quarantine. You're not international international tourism. Obviously, has stopped. It's a you know, it's a reasonable chunk of the economy. And, and obviously foreign students, which has been increasingly um, what our international educa- what our education sector relied on to, to stay afloat. So those, those are two issues that are ongoing. I'm not sure the government's quite cracked how to deal with that yet. There aren't any easy answers. If people can't enter the country, they can't enter the country. But that, that'll, that'll be, the, that'll be the, uh, the challenge in the months to come. I'm interested to get a sense of how the opposition, the National Party, have uh, positioned themselves during this crisis. Um, you know, good leadership by incumbents should benefit from um, emergencies and crises such as this, and we're seeing that mostly around the Western world. There's a few um, examples that stand out that don't do that, Donald Trump being one of them. Um, even Scott Morrison, who had completely balls up the response to the bushfires in um, early 2020 has been perceived as being a reasonably good leader over this over this period and has worked in collaboration with state premiers. Um, the uh, National Party, how have they gone in this phase? Uh, they, they totally bottled it is the short answer. Um, look, as you say, if, if, if you're a leader in a crisis and you're competent, you do do well out of it. There's a rally around the flag effect and people reward you for that. 
and 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 and, on, and likewise, if you if you stuff up a crisis, you pay the price. Um, Jacinda Ardern has, you know, by all accounts, done an extremely good job, and so the opposition was always going to find it hard. The, the problem they had was they they went from you know, there's this fine line an opposition has to run in a crisis where they need to hold the government to account. You know, that's an important thing in a democracy, particularly when the government takes extraordinary powers as ours did during the lockdown. But you've got to be careful you don't look like you're undermining the national response to the crisis. And under nationals had three leaders during this crisis, but the first one, Simon Bridges, just completely got offside with the public. He he carped, he screamed, he was negative. And people just looked at him and they said, actually, he's not trying to hold the government to account in the national interest. He's actually just trying to undermine them and, and be negative. And he got offside with the public. He had one Facebook post he did where he just completely ragged on the government and he had 20,000 responses just eviscerating him from the public. Um, it was just horrendous. I mean, I, even I felt sorry for him. And, <laughs> and 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 basically, he'd never been a popular leader. I mean, the party had polled quite well under his leadership, but he had never been popular. He was sort of down the, you know, in single digits in the preferred prime minister stakes. And that just really was the nail in the coffin. Then the next guy came along, Todd Muller, and he, he promised, I mean, his best speech he gave was the first speech he gave where he said, you know, New Zealanders don't want to hear opposition for opposition's sake. They don't want to hear us just carping and being negative. We think the government did a good job on the health response. Now let's focus on the economy and the economic recovery, which for the National Party was a very good message. He immediately then failed to provide an economic response and then carped about the, the health response. And, it, you know, he, 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 he at one point claimed that there was community transmission in New Zealand and the government was covering it up just completely baselessly. His health spokesperson invented a story about a homeless man sneaking into a quarantine facility, which the Ministry of Health expended huge resource to investigate and found it was false. And then he was finally, um, he was finally done when uh, one of his MPs leaked confidential patient information about COVID-19 patients, which had been leaked by the former National Party president. And then the opposition went out attacking the government for incompetence for this leak, which they'd done themselves. <laughs> and then it turned out his health spokesperson had also received a leak of this of similar information and then had not told anyone about it while the leader had been denying that he had anything to do with it. So and that, that was what led to his resignation. So they, they, they stuffed that up completely. Uh, they're onto their third leader now during COVID and uh, <laughs> she's been a little bit more cautious on this stuff. So that, we'll wait and see there. But I think it's fair to say they haven't covered themselves in glory over this period. It's remarkable when you think about that because they were the hallmark of stability when they were in government uh, from a leadership yeah. standpoint and now watching them in opposition, which happens to everyone. Like, I, you know, Labor's, Labor in Australia has done the same thing over time and so has the Tories. Um, yeah. But it's just. But I mean, you know, John, John Key was, when he was National Party leader and Prime Minister, he was, I think, the most successful um, politician in the Western world in terms of didn't agree with his politics, but in terms of his political management, he ran an extremely tight, disciplined, stable operation, you know, and they had this vice-like grip over the New Zealand public opinion, and they've just completely fallen apart with his, with his departure and then his, his successive Bill English's departure. And it's it's almost like they've reversed places. I mean, you, you'll remember when the Labour Party was in opposition in New Zealand and went through those troubles, and it's... But there's really echoes of that. When I when I see the National Party now, I remember those those really just dreadful years in Labour. It's like trading places. Exactly. And and exactly now Jacinda Ardern is in that position of um that John Key was in, of being the, you know, the leader of New Zealand who people respect, overseeing a stable party that's seen as doing a good job. So yeah. Um Red Sox fans will identify with that because for 86 years, the Red Sox fans were basically in living in the shadows of the, of the New York Yankees. And then in 2004, they broke a curse and then they've gone on to win four World Series and the Yankees have, I think, only won one and didn't even make a World Series in the last decade. And we look back at the Yankees fans now who are all miserable and we go, that used to be us. 
I remember those days. <laughs> that used to be us. Your life sucks. And it's the same for you guys. I, I think it's fantastic to actually watch now just seeing the National Party just completely fall apart constantly in the face of a great, stable, social, democratic political party. Yep. And, and, and I, I have to say, it, it is also a reminder to all of us on the left not to ever get arrogant or complacent because no. just as right now it seems great and it seems like Jacinda and, you know, Labour is, you know, top of the game and the National Party are a mess and isn't this great, how easily it flips. Yeah, absolutely. And look, you know, uh, there hasn't, it hasn't been plain sailing for, for the government and in particular mm. in recent days there's been a, a number of resignations on both sides of the chamber but in particular just this week um, Jacinda had to fire her immigration uh, in Lee's Galloway after being tipped off by the opposition leader, which was quite bizarre, that he'd engaged in a 12-month affair with a staffer in his office. Um, I have read this through the media, but I the subtext of it, it like it was implied that he, it was an abuse of power by the minister, therefore um, he had to resign. Um, is he resigning just because he's done a Gary Hart and has been uh, caught being... Um, sleeping around or is there more to this? What's going on here? I think the context here is really important. So the National Party, following that, that um, the issue I discussed with the COVID patient leak, which led to a resignation and then the leader resigning, they then lost their deputy, former deputy and their number three to resi- resignations. Then this... Andrew Falloon then came along. So there's National MP Andrew Falloon. He's an up-and-coming MP. He's only about 37 years old. Um, he was a first-term MP, former senior advisor in the National Party when they were in government. And he had a very safe seat in the South Island. And he sent out this strange press release beginning of this week saying that he was resigning for mental health reasons. And Judith Collins, the new leader, put out a statement saying he's resigning for mental health reasons. We should respect his privacy. And everyone was very respectful of that. And Andrew Flume was praised for having been open about his struggle. Mm. And everyone was very respectful. Until a few hours later, it started to emerge that Andrew Flume was actually resigning because he had been, he'd sent an explicit pornographic image to a teenage girl. Mm. Um, and the police had investigated him, decided not to lay charges. But the parents of this 19-year-old well, woman had... Uh, had written a letter to the Prime Minister complaining about this. The Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, had then passed that to the Leader of the Opposition. That asked for consent of, of the person involved, passed it to the Leader of the Opposition, who had then tried to cover it up under mental health claims. Over the next couple of days, it emerged that multiple women had received, young women had received uh, pornographic, unsolicited messages from this MP. He he um he's obviously resigned from Parliament. Police are investigating him. So that was the backdrop. They were really in crisis, yeah. and I think what happened then was just there, there have been rumours apparently about Inles Galloway and this affair for some time. Um, and D- Judith Collins, I think, decided to try and play a bit of uh, revenge on it. Um, that's not to excuse everything Ian's done, but I think the leader of the opposition saw an opportunity to change the story and make it a plague on both their houses. And so sent the PM a note saying, I'm aware of this of this thing your, your minister's done. And then she tipped off the media that morning that she'd done that. And the story broke that it was Ian Les Galloway and just sacked him. So I think, I think it probably would, the, the, it may not have been such an issue were it not for the, the environment that it was in, that J- Judith Collins wanted to make Jacinda Ardern look like she wasn't acting on her minister behaving inappropriately. Mm. And, you know, the way she even tipped off the PM, just as the PM had tipped off her, mm. it was kind of a sense to try and mirror it. I think the things that, if it was just an affair, I think it would have been difficult to justify sacking him um, without sacking probably half the MPs in Parliament. Right. I think, like I think and, 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 you know, there's been this mutually assured destruction for a long time in New Zealand, as I'm sure there are in other places, that if you start this kind of uh, witch hunt, you know, you'll have MPs on every side falling down and the press gallery who report on it are equally compromised. So, and, and there's a broader thing, which is that these moral issues are not issues for the public interest. These are issues between the, the MP and their families. And, you know, that's that's a private issue. 
Where I think Jacinda Ardern pointed out with Emily's Galloway there was an issue was the fact it was a staffer and he was Minister for Workplace Relations meant that there was some there was an argument that that was inappropriate um, and it was doubly inappropriate given his portfolio. The other issue she raised was it left him open to allegations he had uh, misused the power of his office and that, that is being investigated whether there were any resources used incorrectly. There's no sense at this stage that there were. So I think it was a mix of, I think it was a borderline case probably, but one that was, um, the issue was heightened because of the, the political issues around it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's interesting because when I first read it as a standalone issue, I sort of thought, wow, that's that um, that's moving into new territory now if we're going to start dumping ministers because of mm. their how they conduct themselves in their private life between two consensual ad- consenting adults um, as opposed mm. to your man, Andrew Falloon, who sounds like a bit of a dirtbag. Yeah, well, I mean, this is actually an important thing, though, which is that one of the unfortunate things about this story is it has become a story about MPs misbehaving. And I think what has been missed is Endless Galloway, you can criticise his actions, but at the end of the day, he was in a consensual relationship with someone. Mm. And and the, the 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 rules he broke, you know, he he hasn't it doesn't appear he's done anything grossly inappropriate beyond his own private private issues. Andrew Falloon has has it looks like potentially committed a criminal action. Right. And you know the, the issue here is consent. He has harassed a series of young women with explicit pornographic images they did not want to receive, mm. which I think is a, <laughs> I think is a different different scale entirely. But it's all been lumped into you know aren't our MPs terrible and misbehaving? Yeah. Um, just a, a segue question to the media in New Zealand. I, I could never really get a handle on when I when I've been over in NZ and read your papers and watched your television. I can't sort of get a sense of the editorial tone of the media in New Zealand. Um, in Australia, uh, you know, we, we, we've got the news limited press that mm. tend to take a fairly conservative position um, and then we have sort of Fairfax that tend to be a little bit more left-leaning, although they're sort of self-loathing lefties so they don't like Labor doing well and they sort of tend to, tend to, to talk up the the Greens more than anything. Um, mm. They've been very critical of Daniel Andrews here in Victoria. Um, uh, Daniel can't seem to do anything right in their eyes. Meanwhile, we're getting belted by News Limited at the same time. So it's kind of like, you know, clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Um, but the press in New Zealand, how, for, for the Australians listening, how would you give it a, a summary of the, the, the media and how they position themselves politically in NZ? I think if you asked any journalist in New Zealand, they would say they're objective and neutral. And Probably any journalist says that, right? <laughs> well, true. I mean, sure you are. Is fair, is fair and balanced. I, 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 I'll be careful here. Careful here. Look, I, I think frequently in journalists in New Zealand are accused of being left-wing or right-wing. I don't think there is an explicit partisan bias in most New Zealand media. I think the... I think most editors tend to, or editorial, you know, decision makers are probably probably lean rightwards, and probably uh, are more conservative and more national focused. But I think most, say, press gallery journalists are not interested in partisan politics. They're very focused on the game, so it's all about sensation and the game. Mm. And there are narratives which are very entrenched. So, you know, Labor isn't good for the economy. Labor can't get its numbers right. Um, you know that that's a that's one that's deeply entrenched. Um, so there will be stories about Labor getting things wrong, or Labor's not competent. You know the, these are kind of narratives that will run that they will cling to. I don't think though they really are particularly left or right wing. There are there are some. I mean, for example, there's a few shock jock type radio hosts. There's people like Mike Hosking who run the. You know, largest commercial radio station used talks ZB's breakfast show. He's just an out and out national partisan. There's a bit of that going on, but I, I don't I don't think there's any great conspiracy against the left. And I don't think we have that same kind of Murdoch style news limited sort of thing you have in Australia. When you were the uh, the chief of staff to the opposition leaders, um, strategically, how did you approach the media in it from a comm standpoint when you were trying to get your 
um, your key messages out. Who did you who did you go to? Was it TV? Was it was it radio? Was it was it print? Was it digital? It it just depends on the on on this sort of story. I think. I mean, the TV the TV is still where it's at. You know, if you've got a major story, the TV is where the eyeballs are, yep. and that's where you're going to get the cut through. But there are other stories you, you get out through through digital and print that are more complicated, perhaps, or there might be a journalist who's more sympathetic to your issue. I, I think it wasn't really a matter of, um, you know, which channel you use. The, the major thing to be aware of was what are the what are the narratives at play about your party and how do you be careful around that? So we knew that the major narratives we faced were we were divided, we couldn't manage the economy, and we were incompetent. And so everything we did, we had to make sure that we had costed everything down to the last cent, We'd had it approved by an independent economist. Um, we shut down any any chance that someone would speak differently on the issue because that would be magnified. Uh, we made sure we'd got the Greens on side because if we didn't, they might speak out and it becomes a Labour fights the Greens. How can they possibly govern issue? Yeah. So we just we made sure we were aware of where we were vulnerable and where the media would try to hit us or find a store find an angle that fit with a narrative, yeah. and we would try to cover against that. It's such a trope about social democratic parties that we can't manage the economy. It's just remarkable. Meanwhile, I've, like the level of effort and energy that that Labor governments and oppositions have to go to to prove their um, economic credentials. Meanwhile, we've got the Tories on the other side. It's like the last days of Rome, the way that they're behaving. I'll give you an example. In, in 2017, in July, the Labor Party in opposition had put out a – entire costed alternative budget every single line there based on treasury figures independently audited by an economic consultancy and that was that was kind of that was that was what we had to do to try and start to dampen down the voices saying labor can't afford its policies labor can't be trusted with the economy this time in the cycle july 2020 the national opposition has no policy mm. published really. A, a few roads that don't add up. Um, they have no fiscal plan. And in fact, one enterprising journalist, Thomas Coughlin, uh, did a story last night, first I've seen of this, where he found that they have promised to cut $80 billion of debt over 10 years with no new taxes, which would require the biggest cuts in health, education, and welfare this country's ever seen. And so either they've got this great right-wing agenda or more, which no one knows about, or more likely, they've just made a bunch of promises that don't add up, which are utterly hopeless, and they're completely unfit to run the economy. But you don't really hear that story because they're the national parties. So people kind of accept that, that, you know, oh, they probably know what they're doing. Yeah. Something that uh, we're going to have to overcome eventually, and we do from time to time. Um, I think I think one thing I would say, though, is Labor, I mean, Labor is actually more trusted now on the economy by the public than national in New Zealand, okay. which has not been the case for more than a decade, probably longer, probably 15, 20 years, if we're honest. And part of that is Grant Robertson has just had to run, the finance minister has had to run a conspicuously conservative fiscal policy and and almost ostentatiously conservative to the point where economic commentators were demanding he spend more money and borrow more. And he kind of reluctantly relented. And then there's this remarkable, um, this hilarious thing where these economic commentators are congratulating themselves for pressuring Grant Robertson okay. to actually spend money, which of course he always wanted to do, but he had to be very careful yeah. because when COVID hit, if he hadn't done that, he'd be slammed. Yeah. Whereas he could say, we've been careful with the money, we've paid back debt, we've got it low, and now we're going to borrow for the rainy day. And everyone kind of pats him on the back. Um, so, but 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 he has run it very well, and we, Labor is now trusted, which means Labor can borrow, Labor can spend, and doesn't have the same kind of um, public distrust, which frankly was so toxic they wouldn't vote they wouldn't vote for us in opposition because they thought we'd just spend all the money and blow ruin the economy. It was you know that's how strong it was. Yeah, um, props to Grant Robson. Love love Grant, um, and great to hear he's doing a good job uh, in the position. Finance Minister. Let's turn to the election, uh, which is not that far far away. September 11? 20th. 20th, sorry. Um, I'm gonna... 19th, 19th, 20th. Oh, no, don't tell me. You don't know. That's terrible. I was hoping you... <laughs> it's, it's in September, okay? It's in September. You, you, you've, you've rocked my confidence. Yeah. Um, one wonders why I didn't write that down. Um, it's not that far away. It's in September. 
Now, just uh, it's, the, it's the 19th, actually, Stephen. Oh, very good. I think you did. I, I, just, I, just, I just googled it. Nice one. <laughs> um, I'm glad you got that machine. Um, let's give the Australians a sense of where Labor is right now um, in terms of they're obviously in a coalition government. I'll let you explain all of that and just talk a little bit about uh, the electoral system in New Zealand. Sure. So we have a mixed member proportional system, an MMP system that's based on the German model. And basically, it's proportional. So parties don't usually win a majority. The The amount of votes you get means the percentage, also the percentage of votes you get is the percentage of seats you get in the House. So no party since we adopted MMP in 1996 has ever had a majority. They've always relied on coalitions. So where Labour is, I mean, in the 2017 election, Labour won 37% and formed a coalition with both the Greens and New Zealand First, the Greens being a nicer version of your Green Party, and New Zealand First being a sort of conservative populist party. Uh, hard to explain New Zealand First to anyone who's not from New Zealand. Yeah. They're not as racist as Pauline Hanson. Um, they kind of want to return New Zealand to about where it was in sort of 1978, kind of the, the pre-neoliberal national party, if that makes sense. I like the um, I like the specifics of actually picking the date 1978. I think that's great. <laughs> I, I I respect that greatly. Their leader Winston Peters, who I regard as the guy that would survive a nuclear blast and still be in Parliament, that's he's a survivor. Well, this he is. Though this might be the nuclear blast this time. They're wow. polling about two percent in the latest poll. Ooh, um, but but look, before COVID, uh, it was pretty even. Uh, it was, you know, it was pretty evenly evenly cut. National was polling in the mid 40s. And together with the minor ACT party, they could form, potentially form a government. And Labour and the Greens were sort of neck and neck with them, with New Zealand First looking to be out. COVID definitely swung that. And there's a range of, of polls that have come out. But broadly speaking, Labour's, I mean, they peaked about 59%, which is just unheard of. But currently, Labour's around 50-ish and Nationals around 30-ish polls. Uh, you add the Greens on, you know, they'll get sort of five, six, seven percent. That's currently we look like we're getting to a historic, possibly Labour majority, though I think that's still unlikely, or a straight Labour Green government, which would be of a far more progressive flavour than the than the you know Labour Green New Zealand First government. Where I would, I think, add a note of caution is that National does have a new leader. Uh, the campaign will obviously shake things up a bit. And also, a lot of the voters currently with Labour are not natural Labour voters. Na- National has typically had around 40% as their base support for about the last 17 years since they consolidated the centre-right. And I think, you know, you talk to Labour's polling people and they'll say our, our, our at-risk voters used to be kind of mechanics and nurses and teachers, and now our at-risk voters are lawyers and accountants and consultants. So there's a lot of people who I think are probably centre-right voters who naturally gravitate to national, who have shifted to Labour over the COVID-19 crisis, and I think will not be parked there for a long period of time. What do you mean by at-risk voter? That's a term I've not heard before. Sorry, voters who are currently, people who are currently saying they'll vote for you, but who uh, who may leave. Ah. So, so you know, they, they might be, say, someone who is typically voted national, is currently voting Labour, but is saying, actually, I'm thinking of switching. Mm. And when you're, you know, when you're looking at your polling, you're thinking, who are the people we might lose and how do we keep those people? Right. Okay. How has the coalition of Labour, the Greens Party and New Zealand First gone when... Jacinda and the government, sorry, when Jacinda and the team entered into government with this coalition, I was like, wow, this is going to be interesting. Um, has it been a success? Where has there been successes and where's the challenges existed? Look, I think, I think by and large, it's been more successful than people would have thought. When the government first came together, it was the first, first government under MMP where there's been three proper parties in a coalition. Normally, it's been a two-party coalition or one major party with some little tiny ones. And people predicted it would blow up in six months. Um, you know, they said, look, New Zealand first and the Greens hate each other. Um, Labor's not going to be able to manage 
this unwieldy coalition. And by and large, it's, it's, it's managed. It, it started to fray a bit more recently, particularly around the environment, where the Greens want to make some gains, so does Labour, and New Zealand First has been blocking things. I think, though, you know, look, they've, they've managed to um, pass a Zero Carbon Act, for example, which means that New Zealand's going to be um, net zero emissions by 2050. They've built thousands of state houses after a decade of decline. They've done a huge family incomes package, which has reduced child poverty. There are, you know, there are a whole lot of areas where they have made great progress. I think, though, I think everyone would agree that it would be very much simpler and uh, far more effective if there was a straight Labour-Green coalition after the election. Uh, the audience will be interested in the relationship between Labour and Greens. I think some of the people that would listen to this podcast would be of the view of in that camp of why can't we all just get on? Uh, and then there'll be others who have dealt with the Greens on in hand-to-hand combat in the trenches of inner city Melbourne who would have a view that um, um, a view that I can't even share on this podcast because it would be so uh, verbally aggressive. Um, but they, uh, one of the, one of the, the, the challenges that we face certainly here in Victoria and it's starting to happen across the other states as well is this sort of, this purity of Greens politics and it's purity because, you know, you're never going to get a chance to govern anyway. So we can set this principal position and we all know that in politics and in government, it's about compromise. It's, it's all the gray areas mm. and working through trying to get outcomes that help as many people as you possibly can, but you're not going to help everyone. Um, how have the Greens gone in government in New Zealand? Uh, are they a different beast to the Greens over here or have they had to deal with compromise? Yeah, look, I, I'll start with the Greens and the differences. I think the Greens here are different and our relationship is different for the, the reason that our electoral system is different. So yours sets you up for conflict. Similarly, you know, I've, I've done some campaigning for Labour when I was in the UK and it's hand-to-hand combat there because it's a direct zero-sum game. Here in New Zealand, because of our, our electoral system, Labour needs coalition partners. So if people vote for the Greens and they get over 5%, it means we have a coalition partner. You know, Labour's worried this election that the Greens might drop out. That's a worst-case scenario for Labour. So it means that we have a far more uh, cooperative relationship, and it means that we recognise we have to govern with them. In terms of how the Greens have gone in government, look, I think they are – any Green Party is torn by the fact that they are created by activists who often want to completely overturn our social order, but also – an economic order – but also – they're operating within a system where they have to govern, where they have to operate in parliament and, gain, and get, get gains through compromise. And so those you end up with two wings in most Green parties between, uh, in Germany they call it the, uh, I think it's the Perillos and the Fundies, where you have, you know, and we have this in New Zealand, we have one wing of the Greens who want to work through the processes to make solid gains over time. And you have others who just say, we should burn the whole government down because they haven't introduced full eco-socialism by next Wednesday. And that is always the tension. They've, they've managed it pretty well here in New Zealand. Um, they have a co-leadership system where they can manage that tension. They can have one who is you know, constructive and practical and one who is far more radical. Um, but they have struggled with the need to compromise. There are, you know, a lot of Green members are furious at their own party because, you know, having won 7% of the vote, they haven't got the entire Green Party manifesto installed. Um, <laughs> and so... And so that that is a tension they face, but look, by and large, I think they've they've done reasonably well in government, and they should be returned. Just when you were talking about then, all I had was images of um, Dennis the peasant in um, Monty Python's uh, Holy Grail, where he's arguing with his wife about "You're fooling yourself. We're <laughs> we're living in a dictatorship." Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, what are the going into this election campaign? Uh, I mean. Is this going to be a COVID election campaign or are any of the traditional uh, bread and butter issues going to break through and the parties will, will Labor will have a chance to campaign on that? I mean, how, this is this is weird, right? Yeah, look, it's hard to say, to be honest with you, but I, my suspicion at this point is that it will be a COVID election. It will be about who's best to continue to manage the health response 
at the moment is the borders and who is best to manage the economic recovery. And I think National would like it to be about anything other than COVID. They would like it to be about whether the government has delivered on all its social programs. There are some programs the government hasn't delivered on. You know, the, the Kiwi Build program, which to build 100,000 houses in 10 years, has been a spectacular failure. The promise to build light rail down Dominion Road, which was just introduced first promise, nothing's happened. So there are, there are issues on delivery which National would like to have made this election about. But I think they're going to be unable to because, frankly, it just doesn't resonate with the public because, you know, Kiwi Build feels like about 10 years ago after COVID. Mm. Um, the argument the government can't deliver, well, they've just delivered saving New Zealand from being infected with COVID yeah. and keeping the economy running. So that those criticisms don't really work. So I think I think it's going to be a strangely, in a sense, apolitical election, if that makes sense. What happens if the virus breaks out again in early September? Uh, Labor may be cooked. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think. Look, I think one of the risks Labor faces is that, in some ways, it's a victim of its own success. Um, no border is hermetically sealed. Um, there will it is, it is inevitable. The experts say it is inevitable that it will break out into the community at some point. There are still cases arriving in New Zealand from overseas. We're isolating them, but as you've seen in Australia, it can get out. Mm. And if it does get out, my worry is that the bar of expectation from the public is so high that will be seen as a failure, even though it is almost impossible to prevent. Uh, the government is, you know, Labor and government is trying to prepare the public for that. You know, say, look, it may get out. Here's what we're doing to prepare for that. Um, but look, we'll see. I mean, there is huge trust in Jacinda Ardern. There is huge trust in Brian Robertson in terms of his management of the economy. So maybe we'll get through it. But I think that is the single biggest risk Labor faces. Yeah, you'd be shitting yourself about that. Oh, I thought about that last night. <laughs> um, and, and the thing is, it is, it is grossly unfair because even if we did have an outbreak, which we then contained... It would still be seen by I many as a failure, I think. Whereas you compare that to any other country, it would be a roaring success. Yeah, I mean that's that's the weird thing though. The debate we're having in Australia, and in particular the debate we're having down here in Victoria, about this second wave of outbreaks. One can make an argument this is actually still the first wave, and we just didn't actually have an outbreak in the first wave when we had the lockdown. And you compare that to what's going on in the United States, uh, and what was going on in Europe, and what's happening in South America, and. The, when you, you know, I was on a, f- a phone hookup last night with some people from from uh, the US and from um, uh, from parts of Europe, and they asked me about how is how's you know what's coronavirus been or what's COVID been like in Australia, and I sort of threw some numbers at them, and they laughed at, it and I said, oh, this is really contentious. People are pulling their hair out, and this is Armageddon and doom and stuff, and they're looking at us going, you're kidding yourself, really? That's a problem. Yeah, and I think that's why perspective is important. I mean, look, we, we, we had some issues here in New Zealand with the managed isolation we're doing in the hotels where people arrive, and we had a few escapees, people people who just broke out windows, done fire escapes, scaled fences, escaped, got chased down and caught. And you would you would have thought that, you know, Jacinda Ardern had personally infected New Zealand with COVID, even though, no, no you know, no, it didn't break out of the community. They were caught, they were sent back. Yeah. And, and I mean, fair enough. There's going to be media scrutiny, but the level of the level of anger and outrage there was, you would have thought that the government had absolutely failed New Zealand, as opposed to done a really good job and had a few teething issues. Yeah, yeah. Perception, perception, and perspective is such a critical thing in this. And also, what I worry about uh, going forward, and it's, we've had a bit of experience of this in Victoria, the fact that we've had to go back into lockdown in metropolitan Melbourne. Uh, I mentally think that the electorate thought that we'll have to go through this really, really, 2020 has been a weird year. Okay, sure, we're going to go into the lockdown, but it's only going to last a certain amount of time and we're going to come out of it and life will resume again. Um, mm. And uh, you know, I can't predict the future, but I hate to say it, but I, I feel like we're going to have to consider that this could be, you know, wearing the mandatory requirement to wear face masks the you know the social distancing the the restrictions put in place the um, the impact that's going to have on the economy this could be the new norm for not just the next 12 months but for the next two three four years we could still be wearing masks in four or five years i mean i, I don't know i mean obviously if we get a vaccine then that the ball game changes a bit but 
Um, I don't know how yeah, you I mean, as a political leader say to a community, hey, guys, don't prepare for, for the next six months. Please prepare for the next six years. Yeah, and look, I mean, we, we are lucky enough, as I say, because we've eliminated it, we don't have any of those restrictions in New Zealand. So we live our lives entirely as it was pre-COVID. Um, but it does raise economic issues then. I mean, even assuming we can keep it out of New Zealand, you know, what do we do with the tourism industry? You know, do we just say, sorry, we can't support you for another two, three years, you just have to close? Um, it's a, it's, you start to have serious questions about reshaping your economy and your society. Yeah, and I look. I think that there is some opportunity there, particularly for social democratic uh, governments around the world, to re—hate such a cliche sentence, but to reframe that narrative, but actually kind of come up with a. You know, remember in the in the nineties, we we're all obsessed about the third way. We need to. Cre- I think here's an opportunity. This this crisis and this urgency presents an opportunity for social democratic governments and so social democratic parties to sit down and say, right, how can we structure restructure our society? Because really what's happening in Australia, the, the federal Liberal government, is they are having to adopt traditionally left-wing positions economically. You know, government is now yeah. relevant. Government's now yeah, important and, and to people. And I think one of the issues that really came up um, during COVID was the inadequacy of our welfare safety net, for example. That, you know, when you have people who are... And it, thankfully, we didn't. That this hasn't happened to the extent we thought it would because the economy has done better, but... We have this prospect of people losing their jobs and our housing market has got so out of control that the amount you get in a, in a wealthy benefit doesn't even, even cover rent in major cities. You know, pe- people simply wouldn't be able to survive. And so the government put in a short-term kind of premium benefit for people who are laid off due to COVID. But there is this issue about how do we support people moving in and out of work? How do we support people in an era where the housing market is so out of whack? Um, I think I think there's huge issues there. I mean, similarly, we had issues around sick leave. You know, people who had who were getting who, who had you know COVID symptoms, saying don't come to work, and they're saying, well, I can't afford not to come to work, so I only have five days sick leave. So yeah, I think there's all kinds of opportunities. I think for for social democrats to start looking at some of these issues and saying we've actually got to do better. Yeah. Well, I um, wish you guys the best of luck. Before we wrap, wrap up, just sort of final thoughts as you're heading into the election campaign. What's some things that we should be looking out for um, if we want to pay attention to the campaign? Um, you know, seats or um, parts of the campaign, the movement of the campaign, the colour. Where's what, What's Labor's strengths going into this campaign from an electoral sense? I just want to, uh, just before you give, gather your thoughts on that, for the viewers out there listening to this podcast uh, and ha- having worked in my old job with the Labor Party in New Zealand, um, I've always been... Um, in great admiration and respect for the campaign capabilities of the New Zealand Party, um, right across the board, it's a it's a great outfit. It's a sharp operation, um, and a real um, um, forward looking attitude towards trialing new ways of campaigning and testing stuff. That's you've there's an entrepreneurial um, aspect to the way that you guys campaign that's really really impressive and punch well above your weight. Um, and there's always been a good relationship between campaigners here in Australia and in New Zealand across the Tasman. So it's and I should note, Stephen, um, you know, I'll stroke your ego here, but, you know, I do mean it. Um, you, you've been an integral part of, of particularly our field operations in New Zealand actually getting us to where we are now. So I want to recognise that. But, look, I think, I mean, New Zealand has, New Zealand Labour Party's nearly doubled its field team compared to 2017. Um, you know, they're, they're building very much on that last campaign. Um, you know, the, the digital has really stepped up. So, you know, digital online fundraising has gone from being, you know, a, a sort of something that's, that adds a bit to your fundraising to being a major donation stream, which is huge. Mm. Um, and, and I think as well, they had never really stopped campaigning. So, you know, about 18 months ago, the campaign group set up again and has been building ever since then. So I think that sort of permanent eye on the campaign and building that infrastructure has been, um, you know, that, that's been what Labor's been doing. And I think, it, I think it'll go well. It's a really well-organised campaign. Hayden Munro, our campaign manager, is outstanding talent, yes. you know, Hayden. And Megan Woods, the campaign chair, again, very capable minister who's yes. overseeing that. In terms of what we're looking at, look, the seats themselves don't really matter that much in our system. It's about your party vote. And I think the key thing will be uh, whether, whether New Zealand First gets in will be really important in terms of the future, the future shape of the government. And I think whether the Greens get in, I think if there is a risk, National's only path to victory is if both the Greens and New Zealand First drop out, drop under five percent, 
drop out of parliament and they can somehow squeeze ahead of Labour. I think that's unlikely, but that'll that'll be the interesting thing, those two minor parties. Well, we um, look forward to seeing this campaign unfold as we get closer and closer to the date in September, um, which I've now forgotten again. It's the 19th, isn't it? It's the 19th, yeah. <laughs> I think it was 20th last time, but I might be confused. Yeah, um, but... Uh, Best of luck to all the, all of the team over there in, um, in in New Zealand with the campaign coming up. Um, thanks very much, Neil, for taking time out of your busy schedule to come on and, and talk to us about a whole number of things that's going on over across the ditch. Um, we wish you the best of luck in your endeavours um, and we'd love to have you back on the show at some time to give us an update about how things are progressing. Thanks, mate. Good talking to you again.